0: happy national ice cream month everyone this is greg and here are the podcast episodes that will be dripping down the side of your hand in the month of july 2022 don't forget to put a scoop of vanilla next to your slice of cake when popping collars celebrates its eighth birthday this month we're taking a look back at our top 10 most downloaded episodes of the pod while blowing out our candles I have dug into some smooth musical soft serve on the latest PC Music Diary when I discuss the Sultry Symphony of Soul Sacrifice by Carlos Santana. Betsy and I continue on our rocky road through the movies of 30 years ago on Going on 30. Next up is an all-time summer favorite, Point Break. Finally, we begin a new journey on The Sacred Six where I chronicle my trip On the Camino de Santiago. I kick things off with a pre trip conversation with special guest Ryan Parker about what every pilgrim should know before they take their first step and whether I should maybe leave my pint of Ben and Jerry's back home. You're listening to Popping Collars, the podcast Sunday that adds extra sprinkles, extra peanuts, and extra collars popped with a cherry on top.
1: Come on, ladies. Hello, this is Chris Arnold, and I was the guest on episode one of Popping Colors.
2: Hello, this is Shayna Watson, ordained priest serving at St. James Episcopal Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm John
1: White. I'm the podcast editor at Episcopal Cafe.
0: Hi there, this is Reverend Eric Moutouye from the Episcopal Diocese of California. This is Kyle Goodman, the lead pastor of Alamance Presbyterian
3: Church. Hi, I'm Richard Lindsay, the godfather of popping collars.
4: Hello, I am Holly McHale Larson, pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Oakland.
0: Hi there, this is the Reverend Mark. Martin Alfred from Grace Memorial Episcopal Church in beautiful Portland, Oregon. And you are listening. And you are listening to. And you are listening to. And you're listening to
4: You are listening to And
0: you are listening to And, you listening to, and, you're, listening to, and you're listening to popping Collars. Popping, colors. popping collars. Popping collars.
3: Popping collars. Popping collars. Popping collars.
2: Popping collars. And this
1: is popping collars.
0: Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture, the longest-running Episcopal podcast since the dawn of human civilization, and the number one faith and spirituality podcast on the planet, according to my mom. I am your host. My name is Greg Knight. I am the Associate for Christian Formation at the Church of Bethesda-by-the-Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. And with me are... No co-hosts. So here's the thing. Our podcast is eight years old this month, and we have been going pretty strong for the last three years or so, putting out a new episode of the pod every week. We could only keep that streak going for so long before we were bound to run into a month where we weren't able to get together to record. Ricardo is off exploring most of Europe, I am currently walking from Terradios to Calzadilla on the Camino de Santiago. Liz is likely on the highways and byways of Nebraska, and who knows what in the world Betsy is up to. So, are we going to just skip a week and leave your favorite podcatcher empty? Heavens, no. Instead, what we've got for you is a special birthday month best-of episode. I ran the numbers and figured out the top 10 most downloaded episodes of the podcast in our new weekly era. And we'll kick things off with a clip from number 10, a spooky conversation about our favorite examples of religious horror.
5: So I had, and I'll just... Name her right off the top because she gets pissed off when I don't name her. So I was talking with my sister.
6: What is your sister's first name? I feel like we should give her more credit.
5: Her name is Emily. Okay.
6: This is Emily. 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 Uh
5: we are, you know, pop culture siblings. She is a very elderly millennial, and so <laughs> I just drag her Ooh. into Gen X with me. I just pull nice. her on in. So we we have very, I would say, similar tastes in programming. So we, so we will often. I mean, she's the person who we're we're recommended shows all the time. So I said, I just, I don't, I think I really took Ricardo's, uh, you know, invitation here much more narrowly, right? Because like, I am not in general a horror fan. I like thrillers. I like psychological thrillers, but horror is not. Where my where I go, you long time listeners will know I am also a true crime fan. I am not necessarily a crime scene photo fan. Like I was a little bit critical of the like Night Stalker Netflix thing because there was a little too much blood flying around. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily need that. So so it's like, uh, you know, your Texas Chainsaw Massacre, your things I, I, I like a little more jump scare, a little more mental kind of thing. But I do think that some of my repelling of the intensity of the genre does come from when I was in college and I had never seen The Exorcist. I'd never seen it, never experienced it. And it was like somebody like, all right, tonight we're going to watch it. And so we all gathered in my dorm room, popped it in and started watching it. And partway through the movie, there was just I felt like this burning in my chest, like I was so disturbed. By the film that I I was gonna I thought I was gonna throw up is what I thought and it wasn't because there was throw up on the screen like that was like whatever and I like it because I feel like I, you can kind of see the strings because it's old but I was like I was so disturbed by the film I've never had that reaction to any other movie before and you know and I live the closest to the extra steps I've been there I've been there right and so there is that thing that element that was really hard for me about that but that was really my biggest experience with religious horror now emily she said well if i was going to define this i'd define it a little more broadly i said well then what movie would you pick because she also not heavy in the genre uh and so she said she said i really like the movie fallen because she started like googling like top religious horror movies and this is like 1998 denzel washington john goodman like Satan is kind of jumping from person to person. And she's like, I thought it was such a great movie. She said I wasn't able to listen to that sympathy for the devil song for a really long time after that movie. But you know, it's just it uh she really, she really dug that. She's like, I would, I would, I would pick that. She said, but I don't know whether I too would define it as horror, because horror for me means bloody and yucky but maybe that's not true for everybody
1: wait did you finish watching it ever
6: uh i think we did
5: finish the movie i kind of said i had to go to the bathroom and i collected myself and then returned back
6: (laughs) i've never seen it either betsy and i sort of i have a um when it comes to religious horror of this kind things that dabble in the occult or in Mm -hmm. the satanic i have a um aversion to it. I don't, I don't want to sound superstitious because it's not, it's sort of about, um, it's almost like, like a diet. It's about like wanting to consume things that are not of the devil. <laughs> <They're not bad. laughs> like it, right. there, it does sort of feel, um, as a Christian, I'm not sure I should be doing that. I guess I know that lots of people do and like, that's fine. There's a lot of really um, powerful cultural critique that goes into horror movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is, I would never gravitate toward a sort of um, Satan or Satan adjacent movie. And so I've never seen the exorcist.
5: And I don't even really have a strong Satan or hell form Mm -hmm. for me. That's not a, I've talked about that this before on the show that that is not something that really lives for me th- strongly theologically.
1: Wow. So I've got <laughs> a lot to say all of a sudden. Oh no. <laughs> My monologue at the top of the hour, but <laughs> it's a little late. Betsy, thank you. That was awesome. Uh, because I think, First of all, uh, you may or may not know this, but when The Exorcist first came out in the movie theaters, people were fainting and vomiting and running from the theater, like screaming. Really? Uh, they were so flipped out because it was so... Di- I mean, the, and you see the movie now and it's pretty tame. It's actually kind of yeah. slow. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh God, when is something going to happen? Um, but uh, it's it's it was shocking, you know, because they just really hadn't... Sh- it's it's sort of like the scene in psycho that you don't expect in the shower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, it's interesting that, you know, many years later, you can still have something like that response. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is, you know, Liz, I love, <laughs> I love that phrase, Satan adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? Are you a devil worshiper? No, but sometimes I'm Satan adjacent.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> I think that's great. Um, I think we're all probably at that point at some uh. in our lives. Um, And I would say that not all religious horror movies, you know, it is a general, it is a general topic. I didn't really specify, but to me, um, there some of them are really highly moralistic um, and very much about right or wrong. And which one are you going to choose? And, and the exorcist in particular, the, there are two priests, Max von Sydow plays the older priest and uh, not something not so good happens to him. And then, uh, the other guy, who the actor, I forget his name, but um, he plays a priest who has a lot of doubts and is actually going through some um, personal trauma. I think it was that his mother had recently died. His and mother died, yeah. Yeah, it was not good, and he was questioning his faith. And in a weird way, the fact that he was seeing the dark side of his faith and losing some of it, that gave him the actual strength to... Uh, Confront the devil in Linda Blair.
7: How did uh, Shrink ever get to be a priest?
1: It's the other way around. The society sent
8: me through medical school. Oh. Where? Harvard, Bellevue, Johns Hopkins, places like that. I see.
7: You're a friend of Father Dyer's, right? Yes, I am. Pretty close? Pretty close. Did he talk to you about my party?
8: He sure did.
7: Uh, about my daughter.
8: No, I didn't know you had one.
7: He didn't mention her.
8: No. Huh?
7: Didn't tell you what she did.
8: He didn't mention her.
7: The priests are pretty tight, mouthed Then, huh?
8: That depends. On what? The priest.
7: And uh, how do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon. If um, if a person's, you know, possessed by a demon or something, how do they how do they get an exorcism?
8: Well, the first thing I'd have to get him into a time machine and get him back to the 16th century.
7: I didn't get you.
8: Well, it just doesn't happen anymore, Miss McNeil.
7: Oh yes, and when?
8: Well, since we learned about mental illness, paranoia, schizophrenia, all those things they taught me at Harvard. Miss McNeil, since the day I joined the Jesuits, I'd never met one priest who has performed an exorcism, not one.
6: But so often stories about exorcisms and things like that, especially involving children and vulnerable people, are really stories of religious abuse. There, you know, the, the church is the abuser, which is also sadly a very true story, you know, in a number of ways. Using power to um manipulate and intimidate and often physically harm a child or a whole family for a kind of sadistic gain. And it's not about, you know, the demon that needs to be exercised in that situation is often coming from the religious authority.
0: Coming in at number nine is a clip from an episode of the PC Book Club, PCBC, featuring Liz and Ricardo. Here was the first time they discussed their take on the New York Times top 10 books of the year.
1: You know, where I tend to get my reading lists each year is I wait for the New York Times 10 best books of the year to come out. And -hmm. it's uh, five fiction and five nonfiction. And I take that as my reading list for the next year.
6: It's a good way to
1: do it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the New York Times list came out um, on Monday, November 23rd. And um, I went and looked at it and I thought, oh, some of the books I've read are sure to be on there. Well, zero of them.
6: Oh, man, I haven't seen it yet.
1: Really? Mm-mm. Oh, mm I... Let's look at it together. I think is it okay to just name the ten best books of 2020 according yeah. to New York Times? I mean we're not you know we're not telling you to subscribe to the New York Times, et cetera, but no no so here they are. Here are the five fiction books. And oh. one of them is called A Children's Bible by Lydia Millet. Now have you heard of this book?
6: I've heard of it and it was as it says right there on the cover, I knew it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and I've heard it's great, but I have not read it.
1: I have not read it either, never heard of it. And I don't know, I feel like I'm missing out. But uh, it apparently has some biblical, real biblical things that happen. Mm
6: -hmm. That might be right up our alley.
1: It really might.
6: Similar, Deacon King Kong. That was another great book that I didn't read.
1: Right? So I just started listening to that on audiobook. Because what I did was when this list came out, I ran to my library online. And anything I I could find as an audiobook, I put a hold on. And then the nonfiction ones, I also, this is going to make me sound greedy, but I also got the book reserved so that in case there are like photographs and stuff, because it's Oh yeah. Historical. Yeah. And then if I didn't find the audiobook at the library, I went to my Audible account and purchased it.
4: I got it. I have
1: all 10 of them now at some level of hold. Or- That's so uh,
6: fun. That's a great way to come up with a reading plan. I love it.
1: So, Deacon King Kong is the second book by James McBride. He, uh, he won the National Book Award for The Good Lord Bird a few mm-hmm. years ago, I believe. And I think that was also one of the top 10 of that year.
6: I feel like this book was a contender for a bunch of prizes.
1: Or maybe this one won the National Book Award. I see it on the cover. Oh, yeah. I, I know Good Lord Bird won something. This guy also wrote a memoir called, I think it's called The Color of Water. And another thing that I came across recently with the New York Times last year was they put out the fi- a list of the 50 best memoirs of the last 50 years. Mm. And I, I was looking at that list. And I'm going to read that. I'm going to read that. And in fact, one of the books I hope to talk about today is from that list. Another choice is Hamnet.
6: Oh, fiction. yeah. This is supposed to be great. Yeah. Fiction. It's about fiction. The, the death of William Shakespeare's son. And it's like a fictionalized, it sounds a lot like Lincoln on the Bardo, but Shakespearean, oh. Elizabethan, one might say.
1: Nice. Elizabethan, not to, you know.
6: My favorite booktube, um, booktuber, which is, you know, YouTube about books. His name is Simon Savage in the UK. He loved Hamnet and was just crazy about it. So that was how I heard about it.
1: Oh, nice. Good. So, and he's good. You like his. Uh...
6: Love him. Yeah. Savage Reads is his. Um, is his YouTube channel. He's really good. My God, see
1: there's such a world out there. That's what I, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. Um,
6: BookTube is great fun. Oh my gosh, BookTube.
1: Okay, there you go folks. So that's Hamnet, a novel of the plague. I guess his son died of the plague. Yeah. Uh, By Maggie O'Farrell. And then Homeland Elegies by Ayad Akhtar. He is a Pulitzer prize winning author of Disgraced, I don't know more about that, but I did. That's one of the purchases on Audible I made. And I started listening to it just last night. But boy, it is so rich. Like the first chapter, a a reviewer compared it to like it was Walt Whitman esque. And it really is. It's this sort of Song of America kind of thing. And it's beautifully written. I actually, you know, I usually can speed up my audiobook to 1.25 speed, like the Harry Potter. Yeah, right. But this, I actually had to slow down to (laughs) 0.8. Oh,
6: wow. So that'll take you a while to get through.
1: Yeah, I went to Deacon King Kong instead for now. Yeah, And then one book that Liz recommended.
6: Oh, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Yes. Loved that book. That's what I talked about on our last episode. So good. Did you ever read it, Ricardo? Not yet, but guess what? (laughs) Yeah, it's on the list. (laughs) So thank you. Yeah, and you talked about what it
1: what it was about. So very yeah, interesting. I loved it. And then the five nonfiction books, which you
6: know, are more fiction people, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I am right now. Ooh, this one's supposed to be so good. What is it, Liz? Hidden Valley Road: Inside the Mind of an American Family, and I think it's about a family that, among um, many many siblings, all or many of the children had um, schizophrenia. And so it was it's sort of an examination of their treatment in the 70s of what that was like. And so it's sort of a a indictment of mental health care from that era, but also this sort of um, it's a family story.
1: Family story. Yeah. This is the only book of the 10 that I actually already had pre-purchased on Audible, (laughs) but I haven't listened to yet. So um, there's my one little victory. And then the next one in nonfiction is you were just talking about it. A promised land by Barack
6: Obama. Here's what I can tell you so far. I'm not a big political, like, I don't know a lot. I'm here for the stories. I'm here for the family life. I'm here for the more personal reflections. But it is very, having watched the West Wing many times, it is sort of fun to be put inside that world. He goes into great detail there's there's th- there some well but there are some things i feel like i d- I don't need to know oh. <laughs> there, there's a lot there's a lot in there but it's okay. very good liz
1: i think you are going to incur some fines by the way if you're i think
6: <laughs> it's so long
1: <laughs> i'm <married> or whatever <laughs> <laughs> and then this book shakespeare in America: what his Plays tell us about our past and future by james shapiro
6: this is good for you because you're a big shakespeare fan aren't you
1: well, I'm more of the Dickens, Dostoevsky, 19th century guy.
6: That's right.
1: But certainly, you know, uh, my better half teaches some Shakespeare in high school. I did try to read a lot of Shakespeare this year. I, I almost took a 10-part a online Shakespeare class, but couldn't do it time-wise. And, you know, in the comments section, people go to town. They're talking about, you left this book out. This book is awesome. So that's actually um, more recommendations. Uh, A lot of people dissed this one. They're like, what? I tried to read that. It was, what was the point of it? Because it talks about his plays in relation to like American history. Like, I guess John Adams had a real problem with the interracial relationship between Othello and Desdemona and was pretty vocal about it. So it's kind of weird. Like it makes those connections. And apparently one of the essays towards the end is about the Trump era, but I can't remember what book they, or what play they link it to, but apparently that's when it really takes off. And, you know, unfortunately by then, either you love it or hate the book. Yeah. So. Good luck. I'm not sure I would read that one. So, uh, and then uncanny Valley by Anna Weiner or Weiner. It's a memoir and she is, she basically goes into Silicon Valley and gets a job and gets, um, the scales fall from her eyes about the the behavior of the people that she is with. And um, this one also in the comments section got a little skewered, although some people found it fabulous, including a woman, same situation, found a job in Silicon Valley and was really disillusioned. Ah. So yeah, so Uncanny Valley, a memoir. Interesting. Um, And then the last one, I've never heard of the book. It's called War by Margaret McMillan how conflict shaped us, oh. you know, she wrote a book called Paris 1919 back in the two, like 2012 or something that was apparently quite a, quite a historical thing. And it's, it's about war. Apparently her view is that it's not an aberration, but a part of human nature to have. Mm-hmm. war, And what does that mean about us as people?
6: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. So very curious. And I, I did put that on hold as well. So those are the 10 books from the New York times for this year. You know, one of the criticisms in the comments section is there are no books from another country.
6: I was going to say there's no international literature here at all or translate. Well, I mean, it's usually the same thing, but usually translated fiction is um, an important part of a well-balanced reading diet. <laughs>
1: exactly. Reading is, especially in this pandemic time, I, I want to say it's so wonderful to lose yourself in another world And if I had more time in life, I'd probably really dive in even more.
6: I know that some people really want to read more and they don't know how, you know, it feels daunting or you did read before the pandemic and now it doesn't feel good or you don't have the intention span. And you made it, you referenced Harry Potter earlier. And um, I would say if you're in that situation, pick up something that's totally for pleasure. Like there is no shame in that at all and it's a good way to to get back into exercising that muscle. I read a few Harry Potter books in the beginning of the pandemic. You know, the fun mystery whatever, spy thriller whatever. Like just it's all it's all good. It is.
1: It totally is all good and you never know when you're going to find nuggets of wisdom in that stuff. Totally. At number eight is a Sacred Six
0: conversation that Shayna Watson and I had about a classic episode of Star Trek, the original series. Devil in the Dark, what was the moment that stood out most to you in this episode, Shana?
2: The title in and of itself um, came to mind when Kirk and Spock were in the cave And, you know, and Spock is doing his mind read, becoming, you know, his empath, his empathic exercise when he's reading the mind and becoming one. But for me, it was like, well, who's really the devil? Who's really the Mm. devil in the dark? Is it this creature in this cave that was trying to protect its babies? Because ultimately, that's what they ended up finding out Mm -hmm. is that, you know, when these quote unquote space invaders came down and started mining in their caves, they were disrupting a habitat.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: so quite naturally in defense of one's home and children, she was defending her or he or it was defending itself. Mm-hmm. So it started killing people. Um <laughs> mm-hmm. but then, you know, of course they eventually learned to live together even though they both thought the other was ugly
0: and it right. found Spock's ears very attractive. <laughs> I can't remember the name of it. I'm just going to call it the creature. Yeah, mine was uh, that first encounter that Kirk and Spock have with the creature. Uh-huh. And I think that the reason that it stood out in my mind is because Kirk was emphatic uh, leading up to the moment before he actually saw it with his own eyes. He was emphatic that that whatever was down there, it was necessary to be killed and uh, that it was nothing but a menace. Like, he couldn't fathom that it could be anything else. Um, the reason that that first encounter stands out to me, especially between Kirk and the creature, is because he doesn't fire first. Mm. He waits. He The creature's coming towards him, and he just waits, and he stays patient, and then he makes a decision. And I think that so often, like, what we see from leaders... Uh, in our current world and, and you know, anywhere is that, you know, like there's this kind of social media like function where it's like, get your take out there right away, you know, get your, get your idea out there as soon as possible. But the strength of Kirk in this moment is that he waited Mm -hmm. until he had the information that he needed to then make a decision. It wasn't just shoot first and figure it out later. It was, well, let me, Let me think about this for a second.
2: Yeah, he was hard set on killing this creature. I mean, because it makes sense. Every time someone goes down there, I think the quote was, whenever someone goes down, they die. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the whole episode starts off with this fear-based trauma, you know, that they were the victims. Mm Mm-hmm. They were being terrorized by this thing no one can identify. They couldn't, I think one person was able to injure it or to have a direct shot, but you know, it it created more fear because the thing never died. It continued to come back. But then by the end of the episode, I mean, everyone's like working together, (laughs) but it almost didn't happen because everyone wanted to lynch Mm -hmm. the rock now, again, the Starfleet coming in as, you know, they're like the United Nations of outer space. But the miners, they were just like, get out of our way. Mm-hmm. We're going to kill this creature. And they like literally attacked them. And in my mind, for me, it triggered a lynch mob right away. Yeah. Like, they're going in. Who cares who's in their way? They're going to kill this creature. So,
0: yeah. No, and that's totally, yeah, what it seemed like. And, the, you know, it's so, it was such a great idea to make the creature as other as possible. So it wasn't. It wasn't humanoid. It didn't have any kind of like any kind of features that we would think of as human. Even even bones is like, it's not a carbon based life form. Like it's a it's a rock. Like that's not that's not even a living creature. You know, like you know, it's like it, it was so other that they couldn't even comprehend how it was even alive. So that may be like the easiest way of stomping something out i mean that's like basically the miners are like we're we're trying to step on an ant like what can an ant think about the world like how can that be a living creature now you've got me thinking about the title love that image of the devil in the dark and who is the devil because now it you could basically tell this story from the creature's point of view and it basically is like the movie Alien, you know, it's like this thing is coming in and wiping out my babies and my eggs. And like I don't know, I don't understand it and I can't figure out why they're doing it. Until you just
2: said that, I didn't appreciate it. I just thought, that, you know, the little alien creatures were gross. They're planting right. their seeds inside of human beings. I'm like, no, take them out. But <laughs> now I'm just like, oh Yeah.
0: <laughs> we are the Well, perfect. they had sharp teeth though, so maybe they just <laughs> <laughs> Number seven is maybe my favorite episode of the podcast ever. Our first annual popping playlist.
6: This is my fourth and final pick. And this is a pandemic song for me. And it comes with a bit of a story. So early in the pandemic was a very hard time for me. Like I think it was for everybody. And especially during those early times when Things were really, really locked down, and being a responsible person meant staying home. And I live alone, so that meant I was alone. (laughs) To make things obvious, it was really hard. And one of the things that was hardest at that time was, which was church. Honestly, that I felt like the the work that I do for the church felt important, and I felt drawn to do it, and that I had responsibility, and that was okay. But the lack of a church community was really difficult. And I felt like a lot of the language and a lot of the resourcing about how to worship and how to be church relied on having a family at home. So it felt just like really kind of extra isolating for me. And I think that like a lot of us, I um, really enjoyed and took advantage of like the sort of live concerts that would happen on the Internet that you could watch. And that 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 would sort of become like um, appointment viewing. You know, you knew that like uh, the Indigo Girls were going to be on Facebook Live on this day or whatever. So the Grand Old Opry shut down during the pandemic. And but they did have concerts occasionally live from the Ryman. So there was a concert that was um, Vince Gill, Emmylou Harris, and Rodney Crowell, who were all seated, just stretched out on the stage, just them and their guitars. These are three songwriters that I love very much. I may have referred to Vince Gill as my boyfriend occasionally on this podcast. He played a song that Rodney Crowell wrote back in the 70s called Song for the Life. I had never heard it before. Rodney Crowell's a great and prolific songwriter and he never got as famous as other people recording his songs. So probably um, Alan Jackson made this song pretty famous, but it's a song about the simplicity, the value of a simple life. And I think the place that a lot of us come to or hope to come to in our development where we no longer long for and expect a really big life, but can value and appreciate and honor the little life that we have. One of the verses is...
1: Somehow I've learned how to listen For a sound like the sun
8: Song for the life I have found it keeps my feet on the ground
6: somehow... so at each verse it ends with um it's a song for the life I have found it keeps my feet on the ground but in the final chorus the, it changes to say it's a song for the friend I have found. And in Rodney Crowell's original song and in the version made famous by Alan Jackson, the song that Crowell wrote, writes, it ends, um, she keeps my feet on the ground. So it's a song for the friend I have found, she keeps my feet on the ground. So it's about a lover or a partner. And in the live version with my boyfriend Vince Gill, who has the most beautiful voice in all the world, he, I think... And I've listened now to this version many times on YouTube. He says, it's a song for the friend I have found. He keeps my feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. So he changes the pronoun. And at least I think he does. His voice is pretty soft in that moment. But it was like a revelation for me. It felt like a gift. It was this reminder, I'm going to cry, like that Mm -hmm. um, you're not alone. Like I heard it that he was talking about Jesus. Which he maybe was doing. I don't know. Again, it's hard to tell when you listen to it. And Rodney Crowell certainly wasn't. But if that was a decision that Vince Gill made in that moment, I'm so grateful for it. Like it was such a gift to me to be reminded of this thing that I knew that even in like all of that isolation, um, I wasn't alone. So anyway, I downloaded that song. Obviously, they never recorded the Vince Gill version, but um, I, so I would like all of us, I developed these weird little routines about like how to get through those hard days. And I would, every, when I would end working at home, I would like kind of close the door and like put on my walking shoes and go out for a long walk. And it was at the end of the day, the kind of day that he's describing in that song. And, um, I would just listen to that. And it was just an incredible gift. And a lot of my ministry is about little places. It's about these little churches and these little towns and, this incredible witness to an ancient thing. That song was a great gift and it's, it was written in 1978 and i had never heard it mm-hmm. until 2021. And um, Rodney Crowell cried on stage when Vince Gill sang it for him. Mm. And it's this great moment. Emily Lou Harris all of a sudden starts harmonizing the chorus and you're like, who, where did you come from? And so Look it up on YouTube. I don't know if Vince Gill made that change. I think he did, and I've even considered writing him, like not in a creepy way, but just to be like, that was really something. Like that really. I was. I was gonna
5: say you should ask him on your next date <laughs> over dinner. I well, know you keep
6: forgetting. I know yeah. his wife might have something to say about it. Yeah, that. she might have a few things. I mean,
0: isn't that the beauty of art, though? Like, I mean, it can mean that to you whether or not he meant it. Like, I mean, that's kind of the whole thing about our podcast, but it's like, but it's true. It's like, it, it doesn't, it it doesn't necessarily matter. Like it matters to you.
6: Right. Um, Totally. And now whenever I hear this song, like the recorded versions that I have, like, that's the way that I hear it. It's a love song about our creator. It's a love song about the friend that we have in Jesus. Like, that's, that's what I hear.
1: Liz, that was a great story. Thank you. Thank you for that, yeah. Those are moments when I believe in the, that the Holy Spirit is kind of moving around, doing stuff. Mm-hmm. When it, you, even if it were wrong, it did something for you. And if you woke up the next day and saw that the lyrics were not that at all, or you heard it differently, what was needed to be done was done.
0: In at number six is an under the stole interview I had with Tom Moore, the creator of animated classics like The Book of Kells, Song of the Sea, and the film that he came on to the podcast to discuss Wolfwalkers. Like, what's the story uh, from your life that stands out that made you think this is this is what I want to do with my life? I want to tell stories. I want to uh, make movies. Like, what was it that happened that triggered that for you
9: uh one that i often think of is when i was a kid i was in a a a birthday party and they put on the secret of nim
0: on vhs for the little kids for like my friend's little sister and i was just mesmerized by the secret of nim and i remember sitting down and at a certain point my friends were all laughing at me sitting down with the quote unquote little babies watching the cartoon and i didn't care i was like let them go
1: i want to see this i kept sitting watching the cartoon so that might have been it
0: (laughs) that movie is wild that's, I yeah. mean, the secret of Nim, like, if you go back yeah. and watch it, it's, it's, yeah. It's, I guess we're just so programmed for like Disney style animation stuff yeah. like that, that yeah. having a story like Nim, it, it really does stand out. Uh, and I grew up on I grew up in all these weird dark movies Like when I think what I thought was a kid's movie Was like Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Secret of Never Neverending Story you know. <laughs> Even E.T. deals with some heavy sort of divorce stuff and all that There's like a undertone that it's his dad not being around That's the causing this sort of journey So yeah, it's crazy <laughs> I grew up in some darker stuff Our number five top downloaded episode of the pod is by far one of our laugh out loud funniest to record. It's our Whoopi Goldberg version of the canon. And Ricardo, you have the first pick.
5: What?
0: Whoopi Goldberg
1: draft. Wow. I have to say, there are so many movies out here. I am tempted to go with like the theme of like (laughs) movie titles. You know, just for the heck of it, like like Jiminy Glick and Lala would. <laughs> Come on. That's gotta be classic somewhere. It's like a bad porn.
4: <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> that's that's a good guess. Um more dogs than bones. <laughs> Another porn. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> can I put something in real quick here? Yeah. I, I have to say this, and it's it's your fault, Shayna. So many of these movies have porn movie titles. <laughs> Look at this In and Out, Loaded Weapon, Boys on the Side, Boys on the oh, Side, The Bordello of Blood, The Player. Oh my God. <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, it's bad. Sorry.
2: <laughs> Monkey okay. Bone.
1: Wow. Wow. Big Stone Gap. Wow. <laughs> wow. Snowboy. No, Showboy. Thank you. That's all.
4: We're on a
6: podcast, Ricardo. More dogs and bone. What's that?
1: I'm,
6: I'm not even looking at
0: the list anymore, Ricardo.
6: Yeah,
1: I can't. I can't. <laughs> oh heck, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my sentimental favorite, which I have never seen.
6: <laughs> I don't know why I love it so much.
1: Uh, I'm gonna go with Sister Act.
6: You've never seen Sister Act?
1: I've, never, what? I've, been to the, I've been to the church where they yeah. filmed it right there in San Francisco by your friend's house. where she Yeah,
6: Hannah's house. To- she was, lived right across the street. They named their cat sister Mary Clarence. There's church involved. There's mm-hmm. church and there's Motown.
0: That's it's right. There <laughs> are <It's> a great <laughs> blend of both. Oh,
6: I might watch that tonight. That's no, nice. um,
1: I choose Sister Act because it's all about, I think, uh, <laughs> um, trying to save the something and all of the plot that it's the t- church oh is it the church I don't know if yes. it
4: was it
1: the orphanage oh no that's Blues Brothers uh <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg as sister as the sister is just you it makes you want to go to a convent it looks like so much fun this wow. is
6: unfair uh,
1: that was incredible.
6: <laughs> incredible oh
4: it's so such a good movie
0: One of the most amazing things about recording the podcast is that we never really know what topics are going to take off. That's definitely the case with our number four episode, when apparently our discussion of music videos struck a chord with our listeners. All right, here we go. I've turned up the volume on the wheel. Let's see if we can get anything through the mic. Perfect silence.
5: All right, there it is. There it is. And it It only lasts for a moment.
0: (laughs) It's Greg.
5: It's Greg. Hey. Hey.
0: Peek behind the curtain. This was my idea for the podcast because I love music videos and stuff, but my choice isn't actually technically a music video.
5: Hi, me. Mean, oh, Greg. Honestly, <laughs> you put <laughs> us through yes. all
6: of this. You're, I've you're, got
0: you're, a back up just in case there's there's
5: all those different workplace personalities the the, the obliger the rule whatever you're, you're the challenger you're the challenger you don't follow the rules
0: i've got a legit one just in case are you guys familiar with the work of steve mcqueen not the old actor from the 1960s but the british filmmaker yes. from this century okay so Steve McQueen put out a series of movies last year. I mean, it's it's almost like a television show, but it's a it's a collection of movies called Small Acts. AX um,
5: A-X-E. and
0: AXE, correct. And the second movie of the collection uh, was a film called Lover's Rock. All of the movies that are in this collection generally are themed around mistreatment of Jamaican and uh, West uh, Islanders in, in Great Britain. But so Lover's Rock is about a house party, really, that's like a reggae house party. Uh, and it starts with a girl sneaking out of her, sneaking out of her parents' house and meeting up with a friend and going to this party. And it's, it's one of those great ones where they like clear out a living room, you know, DJs and speakers and stuff. So it's like this giant empty room where people get to dance. And um, at one point, the entire song uh, Silly Games uh, gets played. Silly Games by Janet Kay. Just like all of a sudden everyone is tapped into this song and I mean like all eyes are closed and everybody's into the groove and into the beat and it's well into the party at this point so everything feels really like sweaty and hot and like the walls are like you know sweating because the you know everything's just just very intense and very like intimate at one point, the DJ turns down the music and everybody that's at the party just starts singing mm. acapella mm. the lyrics of Silly Games. And if you know, and it's just it's just this sort of community of people all singing together, all dancing together, all feeling this thing together it, the reason that I, I want to pick it is because it plays the whole song and it has the images with the songs. But the, the the what the images convey to me is this longing for freedom, for touch, for community, for being together. Like all of these things that we've been missing over the course of this past year um, with our distance and with our masks and with our, you know, like our, our separation from each other. This is the complete antithesis to that. This is everyone's together and we're in it and we're in this song together in that sort of, you know, what, six minute stretch of the movie. It's basically a music video. And it, it, uh, like I said, when I, when I did the intro, like, you know, if you can communicate feeling through that six minutes of like song and image, I just I feel like that's such a powerful combination and Steve McQueen does it. He ch- he communicates so much, I think, uh in that one moment. So that's my pick. It's uh it's Silly Games Janet Kay Lover's Rock uh which was in the Steve McQueen movie Small X. So not technically a music
6: video. I was going to say it sounds like it could be a music video. I mean, it checks all the boxes. Yeah,
1: it sounds better than music videos I've seen.
6: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's it also it harkens back to like there were those music videos back in the day, Madonna would usually have a lot of like I'm thinking of like Justify My Love or something where it's just like, ooh, this thing is telling me something, you know, it's it's stirring up feelings in my little 13-year-old body. You
5: know, <laughs> <And> it's like whoa, <laughs> hey,
0: but, you know, I mean, that's honestly like, you know, that's rock and roll and that's music videos like it's 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 about sort of, you know, making you feel things. And a lot of times that's the sex thing. Um, but uh, but, you know, it's also about closeness and intimacy and is it's just great. And just watching it sort of long for that kind of. Uh, freedom that comes with sneaking out and going to a party and getting back into your bed before church the next morning, you know, (laughs) like that. Uh, Now
6: I want to go watch that. That sounds awesome.
0: The bronze medal number three spot goes to a take two conversation that I had with Holly McHale Larson revisiting our thoughts on Disney princess movies. I'm going to set you up. It was our 15th episode of the podcast. The date was March 27th, 2015. And Mm. the subject was Disney princess movies. When we recorded that episode, the live action version of Cinderella had just been released and frozen was only a year old since then. We've seen a whole host of live action remakes of yep. Disney's 90s library, the return to princess movies with a twist like Moana and Frozen 2, and the launch of their very own app called Disney Plus. Holly, the floor is yours. What is your take to on the legacy of Disney movies knowing what we know now?
4: Interesting cuz Cinderella live action that the gal who played Cinderella, I forget her name, and she's gone on to do other things, but at that point she... I mean, you probably remember the articles, but she they... I don't think it was all the way a success, because they've made her like shrink down her waist to fit into that little corset. But then when they did... I'm comparing that. This is not where I expected the conversation to go, but with Beauty and the Beast with Belle, when they got Emma Watson, who's mm-hmm. you know had been in the industry forever, she refused to wear a corset, and she changed her character and brought her... Char- she added in the architectural part and the inventing. I mean, Bill's already kind of a feminist character. I mean, I guess
0: it was Angelina Jolie, right? When they did Maleficent, that's when mm-hmm. they finally got like a huge actress to be in one of these things. And mm-hmm. it was like, Oh, we don't have to just do the story. Like we can do whatever we want to with these movies. Like they Which can is be quite, whatever. I don't
4: think Angelina Jolie brought really good depth to that role. So here are two things I've been thinking about with the princess movies. One, Mulan, the original, Mm -hmm. fantastic. Mm. That was a strong female character that I don't know why that movie didn't do as well. Was it because it was Asian? Was it because there really wasn't a love story? Was it just not? um, And then the other one, um, Brave. That's also such a great princess story, and that might be because it got lost in the Pixar world, or they didn't know how to market it. Maybe both of them, they just didn't know how to market this. Only the firstborn of each of the great leaders may be presented as champion, and thus compete for the hand of the Princess of Dunbroch. To win the fair maiden, they must prove their worth by feats of strength or arms in the games. It is customary that the challenge be determined by the princess herself. Archery!
7: Archery! I am Merida, firstborn descendant of Clan Dunbrock, and I'll be shooting for my own hand.
0: Yeah. See, that's the thing that I think has really been crystallized for me and especially like uh i would say moana was the one that really sort of hammered it home which is that princess movie doesn't need to involve a love story and i think that we were sold that for a long time in the 90s uh so that when you see the live action remakes that they pick to do that's interesting right because they're all like the love story movies there's no like hunchback of notre dame live
4: action movie <laughs> oh that was such a dark movie yeah mm-hmm. all right so here's my second point is and oh, yeah. I didn't calculate this with frozen too okay but at least with frozen the men still talk a lot more than the women mm. again i didn't check with moana but i bet this is i mean maui talks a lot mm-hmm. where both of those movies er, yeah frozen the men talk way more than the women i found that interesting
0: the runner up for the most downloaded episode of Popping Collars is from a conversation that Betsy and I had on our side pod going on 30 about the best movie of
7: 1988 Dangerous Liaisons do you want I don't know What do you think? (gasps) No! All All right. I just want you to give me a kiss. A kiss? That's all. And then will you go? Then I'll go. Promise?
9: Whatever you say.
7: All right. All right?
2: Very nice.
7: No, I mean will you go now? I don't think so.
4: You promised.
7: I promised to go when you gave me a kiss. You didn't give me a kiss. I gave you a kiss. Not the same thing at all.
4: And if I give you a kiss?
7: Let's just get ourselves more comfortable, shall we?
0: Uh, Okay, so we got to talk about the legacy of this movie. And we've already touched on a little bit of this. But you can't talk about this movie without talking about sexual predators. And the Hollywood system. So the Uma Thurman assault scene Mm -hmm. is hard to watch in this movie.
5: It is. Really, really. It really just all that rape culture. You will eventually want this. Just let me keep doing it. Yeah. And oh, my Lord.
0: It's this whole gross thing, man. And it makes me wonder, like, how this played at the time. Like, would people have glossed over the like, how would this have been viewed? Because it's still, it seems like it would still be shocking if you were to see it in 88.
5: Well, but at the same time, and I know this is not popping collars, but like when I talk with my kids about kind of the etiology, like you know, mythical stories that tell us why things are the way they are. And you look at the Adam and Eve story, because I was thinking a lot about this with this Uma Thurman character, because mm-hmm. what he ends up giving her is knowledge, right? All and right. that's what Eve's real temptation was about. Knowledge and being like God, right? And now, but He's given her more knowledge than she should know, mm-hmm. and that more knowledge than, you know, the street walkers in Paris. Mm-hmm. And they won't even do some of the things that she's now done. And so it's going to be so shocking for this ex husband of Glenn Close's character that she's supposed to marry. And, but that in that, in the Adam and Eve story, one of the things that Eve is told is that she. You know, childbirth will now be super painful, but your desire will always be for your husband. Mm -hmm. So you'll want it. You'll want to do the thing that will get you pregnant, that will then lead to pain. And this idea that women, they just really want it. You just have to talk them into it. And so I don't necessarily know whether the scene would have been looked at with that much protest. (laughs) Sadly.
0: So I'm thinking of two narratives that exist in the current day of Harvey Weinstein, who's vilified. And the celebration that I saw of Robert Evans' life, who seems to have at least conceivably done something similar to what Harvey Weinstein did. And it's like, what are what are we talking about when we mm-hmm. talk about the system? You know, it also made me think about the Valmont character. At no point did I find him sympathetic in Dangerous Liaisons, but I found him completely sympathetic in Cruel Intentions, the Ryan Phillippe mm-hmm. equivalent in Cruel Intentions. And the movie plays it that way. Like he's somehow, there seems to be this reconciliation between him and the Reese Witherspoon character and in cruel intentions, and in, in a way that doesn't exist in this film. And this film felt a little more accurate in that regard. You know, it's well, like I
5: think this the, is a
0: this is a scumbag. Cruel intentions
5: be has so. been softened. There's a little Vaseline on the lens for the whole story. Yeah. Hence, you know, the, the Sarah Michelle Gelletier, et cetera. I'm sure you're really just seeing the true love and life shining through of Reese Witherspoon and Ryan Phillippe put together. <laughs> I'm sure that's what's softening all of it. And did you know that um, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and John Malkovich got together in this film, like, for reals? Oh, no kidding. Oh, no kidding. Interesting. But I, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's a difficult scene. It is. It is yeah. It's really tough. But mm-hmm. I think it comes from a tale as old as time. And I'm not talking about FIFL comes from just the pervasiveness of notions around women and sex.
0: Finally, by far the number one, most downloaded episode of popping collars comes from December, 2020 when Liz Ricardo Betsy and I threw another log on the fire, hung our stockings with care grabbed a glass of eggnog, and told stories about our favorite Christmas pop culture.
1: Mine is is super obvious, but it always gets me, and I haven't been able to watch it for a couple of years. It is It's a Wonderful Life. I I trust you've all seen it, like the real, the long version, the actual version. You haven't seen it, Liz? I've I've never never
5: watched it. it. You haven't either?
1: Oh, Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know.
5: I think we need to it's call our really,
1: parents. It's, I, I think I do. It's really, really good. I think it's profound. And I think out of all these picks, although that's easy to say, it's the most religious. It actually starts with a conversation between Joseph uh, and God and Clarence and Angel, except they're like little stars in heaven that move, twinkle when they talk. You know, you don't know the story. I guess you know the story.
6: Well, I feel like um, I know the basic basic I think I story. Minded. I've just never seen it
1: it's really good so George Bailey is in this small town oh what is it called Uh, Bedford Falls Bedford Falls and um, it's it's the movie was made in 1946, but it's about him growing up and wanting to always travel the world and do big things and be grand and et cetera. And as he gets older in this small town, his father owns a savings and loan that helps the poor people. But there's Mr. Potter, the avaricious banker, who's always th- trying to thwart Bailey Sr. And so George Bailey, who didn't want to do it, winds up having to take over the the savings and loan and helping the poor people it's an amazing movie i don't let the fact that it's a classic stop you <laughs> it's probably in my top 3 movies of all time really? i'll just say that seriously wow. and i know that my my opinion on movies t- trends towards pre 19 you know 60 but you know basically he has a crisis he gets to a point where for whatever reason the savings and loan is on the brink of like being ruined and him going to jail. He never got to travel anywhere because he had to stay home and take care of this business that he didn't even want to do. But he marries he marries his, you know, hometown sweetheart and they lifetime have a nice movie. Life. Lifetime
5: movie.
1: <laughs> lifetime movie. Spinoff. It's it's all about what we value. You know, he wanted all these grand things and he never got them, but in the meantime, he created a community. He helped these immigrants and all these other people get loans for their houses. You know, he has all these kids and a great wife and they're figures in the town, but he, you know, he he misses out and his brother goes to war, becomes a hero. Everybody loves him. He splashed across the papers, etc. So he has this crisis where the savings and loan is going to go bust. He's going to go to prison and he realizes that if he jumps off a bridge and kills himself, his life insurance will actually, you know, be worth more than he could ever be to his family. So he jumps off the bridge and this angel Clarence, who's a bit of a screw-up, kind of goes in. No, Clarence jumps in so that George right. feels compelled to save him. And then it turns out that the angel says, Well, I can grant you a wish. I you can see what your life was, would have been what the world would have been like if you'd never been born. And he sees that everything. Oh my God, I'm gonna start crying. <laughs> oh <laughs> he really had a wonderful Lord. life. Wow. It matters. Yeah. It matters what you do, you know? and he gets that lesson and so he asks to go back you know okay take me back i don't want to see it is i i want to live i want to live i want to live so they find him they've been looking for him all night and what happened was is i'm gonna just this is a spoiler alert is that That okay yeah his wife has called everyone around town that he's ever helped they said he needs this money to to bail out the savings and loan but it's like thousands of dollars or he will go to prison and Every person he ever helped comes and they bring money. They've got like thousands of dollars. He helped me with this and he helped, and I wouldn't be where I am. And oh, Clarence, <laughs> the angel, leaves them a, a copy of um, Huckleberry Finn or Mark or Tom, Tom Sawyer cool. or something. And he inscribes it and he says, Remember, no man is a failure who has friends and it's just it's an amazing movie i gotta tell you and i cry every time (laughs) i cry now so you've got to see the darn movie i feel like um i feel like it's a wonderful
0: life has fallen victim to like meme culture like it's 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 become so sort of in the pop culture that people know like every time a bell rings an angel gets its wings and like all of this stuff and so it, it it has like you know this big kind of this long shadow that kind of follows it before you even start watching it. Right. But when you do right. watch it and I, I, I watch it every year um, because I'm, I'm with you, Ricardo. I think it's a great movie. And it's funny because Frank Capra did not think it was a great movie. He right. thought it was like one of his worst movies that he ever made. I think it's a powerful example of like what it means to live into a call. You know, this idea of right. like, this is, this is who George Bailey is. And this is what, he's supposed to do and it may not seem important especially to the george bailey who wants to jet set around the world but it makes such a huge difference in the lives of all of the people in that town
3: i want the board to know that george gave up his trip to europe to help straighten things out here these past few months good luck to your school george George. now we come to the real purpose of this meeting to appoint a successor to our dear friend Peter Bailey. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to get to my real purpose. Wait just a minute now. Wait for her. what? I claim this institution is not necessary to this town. Therefore, Mr. Chairman, I make a motion to dissolve this institution and turn its assets and liabilities over to the receiver. What are you what? dirty contemptible? I'll Billy. read this next. What? George and oh, Julia not It's too soon after Peter Bailey's death to talk about chloroforming the building and loan. It's Peter right, Bailey right. died three months ago. I second Mr. Potter's motion. Very well. In that case, I'll ask the two executive officers to withdraw. But before you go, I'm sure the whole board wishes to express its deep sorrow at the passing of Peter Bailey. Thank you. It was his faith and devotion that are responsible for this organization. Peter Bailey was not a businessman. That's what killed him. Oh, I don't mean any disrespect to him, God rest his soul. He was a man of high ideals, so-called. But ideals without common sense can ruin this town. (laughs) Now, you take this loan here to Ernie Bishop, you know, that fellow that sits around all day on his brains in his taxi, you know. I happen to know the bank turned down this loan, but he comes here and we're building him a house worth $5,000.
9: Why? Well, I handled that, Mr. Potter. You have all the papers there, his salary, insurance. I can personally vouch for his character. Friend of yours?
3: Yes, sir. Uh-huh. You see, if you shoot pool with some employee here, you can come and borrow money. <laughs> what does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible
9: ideas. Now... I say... A minute, Just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap Penny Annie building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Brody... Here, you're all businessmen here, do not make them better citizens, doesn't it make them better customers. You you said that they... What did you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about. I know. Well, I've said too much. I... You're the you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on.
0: It's a great
1: movie. I love it. Yeah.
6: Maybe this movie will do the trick for me. Like, maybe, maybe I, should I should
4: be at... It. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll if this doesn't, nothing will.
1: Yes. Call is exactly right. I hadn't thought of it that way. You know... And what you do while you're doing the thing that you'd rather not be doing for wanting to do something else actually becomes a life. Yeah. And um, that's a good message for, for clergy yeah. or people who are called yeah. to. Well, it's
0: know. that it's that idea of I'll put my yoke on you and take you where you do not want to go. Right. But it's where you're supposed to be. Yeah,
1: right.
6: Absolutely. Right. Right. Wow. That was Amazing. <laughs>
1: It's, a, it's a me. I got to watch it now. It's like, it's, it's two and a half hours long. Um, it, uh, it fun, fun
0: fact about It's a Wonderful Life. It was one of Jim Henson's favorite movies uh, as a kid, and he named two of his Muppets after uh, two of the main characters in the movie Bert and Ernie. Bert the cop yes. and Ernie the taxi driver. Oh. Yes.
5: Nice.
1: Who kiss in the movie. They do. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> really well, Bert, yeah. this is Ernie's head yeah yeah. So, yeah. and Ernie like smacks him over the head with his cap <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's it top 10 episodes of the little podcast that could we'll be back next month with a brand new episode of the pod in the meantime you can find popping collars on the web at poppingcollarspodcast.com You can subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. Finally, you can find our show on EpiscopalJournal.org. We love Episcopal Journal and Cafe, and we know you will as well. Check them out for all your Episcopal news needs and beyond. And with that, that is popping collars for this time. Thank you to my absent friends, Betsy, Liz, and Ricardo. We'll see you next time, and... Keep those colors popped, pop, pop. Now, should I say something silly to end the episode, or just hit the stop record button? I'll just
9: uh, push the button.
2: It's a-